0: This is Climate Positive, a show featuring candid conversations with the leaders, innovators, and changemakers driving our climate-positive future. I'm Chad Reed. I'm Hillary Langer. I'm Gil Jenkins.
1: This week on Climate Positive, we're presenting a special episode courtesy of our friends at TigerCom and Suncast Media. I recently had the pleasure of joining fellow leading clean tech and sustainability podcasters for the fifth in a series of lively quarterly roundtable discussions on the most pressing questions and issues facing the transition to a clean energy future. We covered topics such as the impact of the U.S. Supreme Court decision on EPA power plant regulations, the implications for energy markets due to the ongoing war in Ukraine, the escalating attacks by pro-fossil fuel pundits, and a whole lot more. I do want to make one important editor's note that we recorded this conversation right before Senator Manchin's surprise and welcome support for climate provisions in what is now known as the Inflation Reduction Act of 2022. Obviously, we'd all have much different takes if we were recording this episode just a few days later. In the show notes, we've linked to all the terrific podcasters included in this roundtable. Please give them a follow when you have a chance. And with that, I hope you'll enjoy this rich one-hour discussion of the top clean energy trends, developments, challenges, and opportunities from where we sit.
2: Climate Positive is produced by Hannon Armstrong, a leading investor in climate solutions for over 30 years. To learn more about our climate positive journey, please visit HannonArmstrong.com.
3: Already, Well, clean techers, welcome back to the fifth Episode of the clean quarterly clean tech podcasters roundtable, and um, we've got a distinguished crew here today. We were welcoming Bill Nussie back; he had missed the last one. So let me just let me do go arounds here. Uh, Nico, want to introduce yourself? Uh, Nico's our um,
4: he's our one of our, our co hosts and co co-produ- co-producers of this thing. Absolutely, thanks, Mr. Mike Casey. My name is Nico Johnson. I am the creator and host of the Suncast podcast, now entering its second. Uh, Round of 500 episodes. We just uh, actually just recorded episode 500 this morning. And uh, Suncast Media is our production company. We help creators and uh, and company leaders in the clean tech industry tell their story.
1: Good, Gil. Hi, folks. uh, Gil Jenkins. Uh, Glad to be back. I'm the co-host of the Climate Positive Podcast, which I produce with my two colleagues here at Han and Armstrong, which is a clean energy investment company, and uh, we. On our podcast, try to interview a range of folks, business leaders, academics, authors, uh, to try to give our listeners a bit of inspiration and uh, some insight into some, some of the most promising uh, energy and environmental trends that are shaping climate action.
3: Super. All right,
5: Tim Montague. Hey, everybody. I'm Tim Montague, host of the Clean Power Hour podcast. And I am also a solar developer for a company called EDP Renewables. And I do Bespoke Solar Consulting on the side as well. And I'm just uh, really thrilled to be here with so many awesome people. Great. Bill Nussi.
3: Bill Nussi, author
6: of a book called Free Energy and also the host of a podcast with the same name. And we are focused on uh, the innovator, uh, entrepreneurial, investor side of all the technologies that are helping this industry happen even faster uh, to get to a clean energy future as soon as we possibly can.
0: Josh Porter. Uh, hello, everybody. This is Josh here with the Solar Coaster Radio Show Media Film Company in Maui. Um, we started out as a radio show about four or five years ago, and have kind of morphed and changed into uh, presently doing installations of new technology. Right now, we just did the Solar Edge home installation here in, in, in Makawao in Maui, and shot and filmed a whole bunch of great tech, great content around that. We also did the Span load control panel and shot and filmed <laughs> a bunch of the uh, technology. And uh, this right. Here behind me is the uh, is Angel Stadium. We're gonna be showcasing some of our content at the main networking event at SPI in September. So I look forward to seeing you all there.
3: And um, we are delighted that Emily has joined us. Emily, we're just going around doing introductions for the for the the attendees here. So just yourself and the podcast host
2: hear from you. I'm um, Emily Chasen. I work at Generate Capital, a sustainable infrastructure company in San Francisco <clears throat> and I'm um, based in New York and I co-host the Energy Gang podcast and we talk all about everything that's going on in energy, in politics, in finance, uh, ESG, the whole gamut.
3: Now, I'll uh, round out as saying I'm Mike Casey. My day job is running Tigercom, the clean economy, Marcom and public affairs firm, but I'm the host of Scaling Clean. Uh, we say is the podcast for clean economy, CEOs, investors, and the people who advise them. So uh, I'm just delighted to have this uh, group convened again, uh, Julia Piper, who wanted to join us uh, had a scheduling conflict. She sends her regrets, but we're, um, we're going to try to shoulder on without her because she's always an awesome addition. So anyway, um, what I love about doing this is that the editors who we host once a quarter, they have this commanding breadth of the sector, but the podcasters have commanding depth. Like, you know, they, their the nature of their coverage is to really go deep on ideas and companies and people and products. And I think when you put people with a lot of deep perspectives together you get a really um vivid mosaic you get a really clear picture that comes from little uh individual perspectives so it's just and it's plus they're fun it's it's the fun thing to do so podcasters we got a couple of questions we kind of got to get out of the way because they're it's hard to ignore them one of them is what do we what do we all take into account for the you know the the Dobbs decision and Manchin's um performance art i guess i don't have a better term for it um so <laughs> in, the, in the wake of those two gut punches of the biden uh, climate agenda can i just get people's takes just kind of do a go around i want to ask about ukraine and then we we have uh we've got like seven different listener questions that have already come in that are really good and and i know that i didn't send these to you in advance, but they literally got the last one like five minutes before he came on so mm-hmm. these are super smart questions and i'll throw throw them uh to the group but nico can we start with you just uh, your take on uh where does biden go and what is does clean tech need biden to go
4: anywhere hmm. i suppose it's a two-part question yeah uh, it is a, a two-part answer in many ways i mean he's kind of left with executive order it's going to come down to what are the states committed to i think we're going to see a lot in uh, proofs in the pudding when it comes down to state action like states in new, like new york for example I don't see anything beyond really uh, executive order. And I wonder how much teeth it has, especially if the White House changes hands in two years. You know, does that mean we've got two two years to kind of get something done that the executive order sort of helps us move forward? I do think that uh, he can move the needle in trade policy and move trade policy more in our favor, even if he can't move the needle on something like Build Back Better right now. And that in particular, I am... The conversations I'm having are around sort of tangential industries that are, that are vectors that we can sort of attach onto. One is uh, the steel industry. The other would be the glass industry in particular, both of them are really important for solar and for the broader economy around batteries and electric vehicles. And uh, I'm hearing some positive signs that there's you know, legislation that's going to incentivize local manufacturing, and I think that will ultimately, long term, have an impact on our industry. Whether or not it has the kind of impact that Build Back Better would have on broader climate action is still to be seen.
3: Emily, what's your take the wake
2: of Dobbs and Mansion? You know, fortunately, the federal government has a lot of different tools available to it. I mean, I think everybody used these as a setback for sure. But the past few years, we've seen a lot. Of everything in clean tech driven by the states. So, you know, California and New York have very aggressive goals, and they've really created sort of a lot of the demand and clarity around the demand for these products. And there's a lot of states that are copying New York and California's policies. So I think that's still going to be the driver of demand right now. It's sort of a shame to not have more coordinated possibilities this way, but the Biden administration does have a lot of tools in its toolkit. So I think um, it's just going to force them to use some of those other things. Gil?
1: Well, I'm reminded of. Well, my grandma used to say, uh, we are depleted, but not defeated. I've been, that's been kind of my mantra since um, certainly since last Friday with, with Manchin's decision, which I, I don't want to mull in this too much, but, but it's so galling um, given the stated reasons that uh, we're actually concerned about inflation. And we know the bulk of inflation is driven by rising fuel costs. We can't get behind a bill that would actually lower uh, consumer electricity prices and and you know offput against rising fuel costs for for transportation. And mind you, it's also was a package at the end that raised twice the revenue than than it's been. So that's taking money out of the economy, which is inherently deflationary as well. So putting that aside, there is talk of a of a last ditch Hail Mary effort. Um, and you know I, I welcome those attempts, whatever the small percentage may be, it it matters because this is our future. Uh, But certainly the the odds are incredibly low that, you know, Manchin has a change of heart. So we do have to shift to, on the federal level, attention on on, uh, the president is prepping a new suite of executive actions. Um, Some of those could be impactful, but I think what people are forgetting, and, and then I'll move on, is that you know, the Biden administration has already released two or three, at least by my count, very robust climate executive orders, particularly in the area of federal procurement. There was one at the end of December. And while I'm all for new actions, I think one of the most impactful things we could do is take some stock on the already ambitious executive orders. And how, how are we doing on that a year and a half in? And how much can we move the needle by 2024? or 2025. And so I have a little bit of concern that we're putting too much emphasis on new executive actions. You know, we have to do both, I suppose, but um, there's much out there still that's already been targeted. And, and I'm concerned we're not moving fast enough on the existing initiatives.
3: All right. Tim Montague, spokesman from the Midwest. What do we got?
5: We have to remember that Americans want the energy transition by and large. They may not be concerned about climate change but they want the energy transition. They're starting to understand the value of electrification of transportation as gas prices are going up and energy prices are going up in general. And so consumers will start to drive this more. Big finance has already been driving it, right? The economies of of wind, solar, and energy storage are winning the day. And that is why the fossil fuel Uh, utilities are making the transition. So we do need good legislation in Washington. I'm not going to deny that at all, but the action is at the States. And I don't have a lot of faith in executive orders. They're too short lived. Not that they shouldn't try something there, but I just think let's pay more attention to consumers and what they want. All right. Josh Porter.
0: You know, I got to tell you, there's there's very few things in this world that I feel I know less about than how the federal government makes decisions. Uh-huh. So
3: when join, when join the question, club, Josh.
0: That is funny. Kind of he just question,
3: said
6: federal government making decisions. That's a funny joke, <laughs> right.
0: anyway. Uh, you know, and I tend to, um, to tend to default to the idea that well, we know there's kind of similar to what Tim said. There's a uh, there's just such a hunger for this technology. I think it's been uh, kind of you know, clarified recently with all the things that are happening in the world with, but specifically with gas prices. I mean, I, and I tend to think on the ground right here, in our home state of Hawaii, you know, we've seen gas prices as much as 650 a gallon. And then guys are driving big trucks around and it just doesn't work. I mean, now you're getting hit four or five, 600 bucks a month for your gas prices. And then the utilities already there. We're 40 cents kilowatt hour in that kind of territory. So, you know, when you have that, I see a huge drive, for people to buy an EV. I'm looking around all over the place trying to find an EV. It's a reasonable price. Right. And so I, I look towards that. That's kind of what I see. I did try to find some information out when I read this question. I realized that my, I'll give a little plug for a friend of mine this is a a book that maybe can help us kind of learn a little bit more about the politics of global climate change by patrick regan i have been trying to read through this to better understand how decisions are made at various levels federal state or international uh he's a great guy notre dame peace professor met him he's started a pv manufacturing firm in elkhart indiana employing only ex-cons amazing fella i think it's a book to check out maybe we can find some answers there
3: all right, I saved the small solutions guy for last to address the impact of the failure at the large scale. So, Mr. Nussi? Hey. <laughs>
6: you know, listen, I, I think the dimension uh, stumble was just another in a long series of opportunities for the world leaders to do what they should have done. I mean, I, uh, COP26 was largely a whiff in my point, so no big surprise that the U.S., one of the most lagging countries in the world in terms of this stuff. Uh, whiffed again, disappointing. Uh, but you know, I, I'm, a, I'm an optimist, and there's in the wave of this sort of terrible things going on. You know, I talked to a friend of mine who's in London this morning, and he was telling me what it's like to live in 104 <laughs> degree weather in London, which they've never had in the history of the that area. That's happening in Spain, Italy, uh, across the Europe, and and Europeans are different than Americans, and they tend to. Be more accepting of the changes coming, and so I think that between the Ukraine war, the, the fuel shocks that are happening because of that, and the European approach, is that Europe's going to be incredibly aggressive on this, and they only have to do one little thing that's going to kick America's butt and get us in and, and, uh, and get us going, which is uh, put a carbon border tax in place. So, even if we don't put a carbon tax in the U.S., if we want to sell stuff into Europe, which is one of yeah. our largest markets in the U.S., we're going to have to pass a carbon border tax. So, I think it's and, but, but I'll tell you what, I think all of that doesn't matter because Josh said it, and I want to echo, there's something that everybody's forgetting, that all this stuff we're talking about, all this clean energy stuff, it's a technology, and everyone forgets that. This isn't like you know, finding a better way to get coal out of the ground or some new nuclear reaction. This is actually like your iPhone. And the thing that everyone's missing is that in two years, it's going to be 20% cheaper, and in 10 years, it's going to be 50% cheaper, and that is an economic juggernaut. That nobody's going to be able to. Its policies and politics and lobbying are all going to fade away. So I always like to joke that there's a lot of things you can uh, debate about in America, whether you're red or you're blue, but there's one thing you can't tell any American, which is that I'm going to take a, I'm going to make you pay a whole bunch of extra money. Uh, your family is going to have a much bigger bill because I want to make sure that some large giant um, corporation has very comfortable profit levels. Yeah, you know, it doesn't matter whether you're Republican or Democrat. No one in our country will put up with that. So I think it's a matter of time. Not too much longer, three, four, five, six, seven years where the costs become so unstoppable that the transition happens, even if the politicians are kicking and screaming.
3: Yeah, Charles Koch, are you listening to him? Listen to my friend Bill Nussi. take you. All right, good. Um, let's just do 15-second uh, responses on Ukraine. Putin's been making a mess of Ukraine for five, six months now. Ripple effects around the world. Is that having uh, an effect on clean economy? As you experience it, just maybe, uh, let me start with you, Tim.
5: I don't really know. I, of course, I think corporations are taking advantage of the situation. I think that we should look to Denmark. You know, they get 60% of their energy from wind. Enough said. Gotcha. Josh.
0: Well, um, I think that we're seeing, right now in Hawaii, there's, Like almost all, like almost all the major RFP phase one. RFP phase one is the largest utility scale procurement or uh, of any utility in the history of the United States, right? For renewables. So, uh, but most of those solar systems. I want to say like three or four last week just got kicked and they've been getting kicked like dominoes for various reasons. And a lot of that has to do with pricing and renegotiation of PPAs. I have to assume that has to do with inflation, cost of materials, cost of goods. And I think that a part of that has to do with the war. So uh, that is my kind of chief concern at the moment. These are systems that I thought we had set up. We went through the decade long mandate to, uh, to PUC approval to the utility issue in the RFPs to getting them awarded and all the work that's behind that. And now we're at a place where they were like, yeah, we're, we're good to go. We're going to hit 80 points, 80% renewables. That is in Maui and X in, in Kauai in the next year or so. And then they're dropping like flies and that, that, that is a bummer, man. So I, I that, that's what I see the real world implications. And I think it is probably related to that. I, you know, so that's what I see. I, 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 I don't like it. Don't like G- it at all. Gil? Yeah, I think
1: there's no question that the paradigm changed in February and certainly the conversation around climate change you know it's it's about meeting the dual challenges of of the climate crisis and and energy security and national security. I do think that the uh, obviously the the upside boost to clean energy and that transition is, is will be and is being felt more acutely in Europe first and there I think that on in terms of the broader conversation I think the clean energy industry was a little late in the early parts of the spring um, and lost some ground on the broader messaging more around energy security we came back but I, I sort of see it it dissipating um, there's not as much of headline vigor around well this just makes the case even stronger on needing to accelerate the um uh, transition to clean energy faster. It was already happening, but uh, this gave another uh, proof point, certainly. So I, I think it's at this point, um, there'll be more twists and turns, but I'm not sure there's been a, um, a major boost in the immediate sense. But in the long term, there's no question this, this strengthens the case and the demand for uh, a faster clean energy
6: transition.
3: All right, let's do uh, Bill, Nico, and Emily on this last question. Basically, what's the effect of Ukraine, the Ukraine war is having?
6: I think all the really large projects are lagging indicators. I, I'm i an optimist. I look at leading indicators. And the leading indicators for me are uh, clean tech, the tech tech part of clean tech. And I just interviewed uh, the two founders of clean tech, uh, uh, climate tech venture capital, Sophie Kim and uh, Sophie Purdim and Kim Zo And uh, they just came out with some really interesting data that actually climate uh, tech funding uh, increased in the second quarter and looks to be increasing in the third <laughs> quarter. So again, I think people that are taking the long view, uh, looking at the, the trends beyond uh, what happens quarter to quarter. I, I think there's tons of reason to be optimistic, as frustrating as it is to see some of these really important projects slow down. Uh, long term, this, this is unfortunately a marathon. It should be a sprint. It's a marathon. I think the, the outcome of the marathon is still really positive, even despite these hiccups right now, big
3: hiccups. Nico? Yeah. Oh, go ahead, Joe.
1: Oh, Nico. sorry. Just quick follow-up. I thought that was an excellent point. I I was surprised and encouraged that uh, clean tech VC funding remained um, stable and strong um, with all the turmoil in markets as well. Um, But also a great fact uh, on on an optimistic note that uh, EV sales had a record uh, Q2, up 66%. And I'm I'm tracking to see, are we going to see that in Q3? Because I think there was a perception that obviously this would be great for EVs, but with supply chain challenges and limited Um, Could EVs really capitalize on this moment of $5 gasoline? So um, let's set more records on quarterly sales for EVs. That that was encouraging. Despite those
4: headwinds, um, you know, we had big numbers there.
3: Nico, Ukraine.
4: Yeah. Tagging on, a really good friend of mine wrote a book recently that suggested that the EV market is a Trojan horse for everything, all our dreams and wishes to come true in renewable energy. Uh, so I'm tracking with you there, Gil. I agree. And I think that uh, the EV industry in general got a gift. Uh, you don't look a gift horse in the mouth. Um, I think that broadly and looking at macroeconomic issues for kind of what sets up clean energy to succeed. When I was developing solar projects in Latin America, which is before I started Suncast, I was it was right at the time, 2013, 2014, when oil was going from what we see in prices now, $100, $120 a barrel down to 50. And the big question was, if $50 is the new normal for oil, does renewables have a chance? Well, the reality is where you know, in, in, in developing uh, nations, not developed economies, but in developing nations where bunker fuel is the alternative for peaking, everybody is asking themselves, how do we get to renewables as quickly as possible? So outside of the United States, uh, the oil crisis is having a big impact on uh, on macroeconomic government uh, pocketbooks that where they are by and large using oil to fuel the lights and air conditioning. Um, so that's one side. On the other is you know the back to the issues with mansion and also the the war and and increasing uh, prices for fuel the pump, but also insecurity of supply california energy wire had this article last week i don't know if you guys saw it but california is looking at potentially keeping the last nuclear plant diablo canyon power plant open right so here we are looking at coal plants and nuclear plants that were supposed to be sunset they were supposed to be closed by law that policymakers are saying whoa whoa whoa, wait a minute hang on are we sure like can we really let's hold on for another minute here are we are we certain so I think that it's it's having that dual, there is a dual effect where globally, the war is impacting the macroeconomic situation around how people generate electricity. And here at home, we still have now more argument for policymakers to say, wait a minute, energy security at home, like let's keep these plants alive that we already know are creating our baseload power.
3: Emily, last word on Ukraine, and then we're going to go to audience questions.
2: Yeah, I'm going to echo a little bit about Nico said, but I think it really changed the conversation on energy security and people thinking about what that is. I was just looking at gas prices and just it affects people like from very basic levels, like everyday purchases, all the way up to the government and policymakers. So um, the gas prices are like five dollars a gallon this year. They were $3 a gallon last year. So this is a big difference for everybody's wallet. And I think when we're thinking about the energy transition and the ability for those prices to come down, like we were talking about earlier, and deflationary impacts and that, 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 that is an important thing in there. But the most important thing that to come out of this, I think, is people rethinking these plans to shut down nuclear plants. Ironically, the Ukraine was about or ironically in Ukraine, about 55% of their energy before the war came from nuclear. It was one of the like biggest places in the world where there was nuclear energy. In the US it's about 50% of our clean energy, 20% of our total energy for nuclear. Um, And there's tons of places where they were talking about sunsetting these plants. And I think they're gonna rethink that. I think they're gonna rethink, you know, what's the marginal benefit of continuing to operate these versus actually shutting it down. And it's just the cost benefit situation is changing. All right. I'm going to go to audience questions. I'll just
3: throw them out. Anybody can take the question. I don't need to go round robins, but let me start with a question from Jake Sussman. He is uh, one of my co-founders on the clean tech leaders Roundtable. So I'm going to paraphrase Jake's question, but basically he, he, he wants you all to answer this question. New York times is going after net zero goals. Is it better to use the stick of shaming on greenwashing sustainability goals, or is it better to praise those who are doing it well and push the others as a result? Anybody want to take that question?
4: So I, I'm gonna, I'll step up and be the first. I, I think I'm going to take a leaf of Gil's book. My grandma always said, you catch more flies with honey than vinegar. And uh, I always believe that if you take the high road and praise those who are doing it right, you set the example. And I'm going to choose that answer because that's what I want for my children. I want us to be as, as people who are in the media, we should be setting the standard for what is right and what we aspire to see if we don't see it. I see organizations uh, like 3BL that do a great job of shining a light on the ESG uh, activities of big companies. And a lot of folks think that that, uh, that that a lot of that stuff is greenwashing, but the reality is that on the whole, we are moved, we're moving so much closer to our ideal goal back in 2006 when I got in the industry uh, than we were back then. And uh, there's always going to be a level of greenwashing, but I like to point to the companies that are doing it well.
2: Greenwashing, I think you really just have to think about where we are in time. I mean, even in the clean energy industry, I don't know many clean energy projects that have been made completely without fossil fuels. Um, Mm -hmm. Even if you're just going to use a truck to do some maintenance, right? There's an economy that we've entirely built on fossil fuels and we have to transition off of it. And so you can't really be a purist. The perfect can be the enemy of the good. I think we just have to remember that all the time when we're calling out greenwashing that, of course, you don't want people to overstate things or to lose trust in the industry, but um, we just have to also know that we don't live in a perfect world yet. I'll
6: like- add one more thing, uh, which is, I, I don't know if the SEC will get away with uh su- su- survive the su- Supreme Court beating they'll get as they try to Create transparency on uh, carbon emissions and things like that, but I think the uh, a lot of the green the calls for green calls against greenwashing and the claims of climate heroes are all very subjective, and uh, we're going to be in this finger pointing mode and and asking this question that you've asked, Mike, which is a great question. But I think if we can just get some solid transparency going, uh, the data will speak for itself, and greenwashing will just go away because you can't get away with it. Uh, I just hope. To me, that would probably do more from an executive action point of view than almost anything else I'm aware of, uh, just by creating transparency. And I I do have I I've talked to a couple of Fortune 500 CEOs in the last two weeks, uh, and uh, you know they're acutely aware of this and what it means to their businesses. And one's a fossil fuel CEO, and the other one was a very forward thinking CEO, and they both they're both incredibly aware, excited, concerned about uh, the SEC actually changing what they need to report but it's very consequential to them and i think it will have a big effect
3: yeah bill it's interesting you say that we have a client uh michael parr at the ultra low carbon solar alliance and he he last year he wrote a series of analyses and he talked about that we're in the cso era chief sustainability officer era that is as these big sustainability commitments have been made budgets, profile, and the distance you can fall and splat reputationally have grown. So we went from, you know, CSOs, sometimes were siloed, not very high powered positions. And now it's actually fairly consequential. And I thought that was kind of interesting. So there's more of an acute awareness of reputational risk. If you're doing things like you're buying solar from that's made in Western China, that for every 40 pound solar panel, they burn 520 pounds of coal. I mean, that's actually a fairly significant number. So it's interesting. I also was struck by the lack of standards. What is a credible sustainability program? What is a silly or fallacious sustainability program? So it's hard, I think, to charge greenwashing if you don't have anything approaching um, a uniform standard for any of this stuff. It seems to me to be sort of challenging, but let me move to others because we, we got them coming hey, in Mike, the right Mike, here. Mike, yes, uh,
1: one quick follow-up, um, and I hope I answered uh, Jake's question here. But you know, I think the greenwashing concerns are real. And, and, but I, I'm more concerned about to a certain extent a little bit more the broader attack on, on ESG and conflating that term with sustainability and, and climate action. And, you know, we're seeing it from all, it's it, a lot of sort of career right-wing politicians who are sort of trying to make this the next overheated debate in our culture wars, you know, it's brought to you from the same people who brought, um, CRT uh and it's woke capitalism so that you know <clears throat> right. I think some of it's silly some of it's trying to raise money but uh it masks reasonable critiques about the wild west of ESG ratings which Emily knows well from and and serious reforms that need to happen there but I look at some of the messengers and they're certainly being opportunistic and and In calling out folks, um, you know, you have to kind of question their motives and their their funding. So there's certainly a broader uh, assault on sustainability, ESG-focused companies, and and clean energy companies are getting wrapped up on that. We've heard this um, before, but it's just back with more vigor.
0: I want to tell you about another podcast you might enjoy. There are trillions of dollars flowing into climate solutions. The world's largest energy firms, tech companies, and banks are putting big dollars behind climate tech. So where is a smart investment going? Catalyst with Shale Khan offers an authoritative guide to how we address climate change across the global economy. Hosted by veteran analyst and investor Shale Khan, Catalyst digs deep into climate and climate tech solutions with the world's top experts and helps us understand the trends that are reshaping the economy and transforming the way we power our lives. Listen and follow Catalyst wherever you get your
3: podcasts. Got a question from the EV uh, infrastructure char- charging infrastructure company, Electrada. What are the biggest obstacles to electric uh, vehicle electrification facing fleet operators? Anyone want to take that question?
5: I'll, I'll go on that. You know, this is a serious problem and challenge because when you want to install big electrical infrastructure to charge a fleet of EVs, the utility is going to say, that's great, Mr. Fleet Owner, but That's going to cost $500,000 in a transformer upgrade or some other infrastructure upgrade, which can make the financial piece of the project challenging. Um, This is where it is so vital that we have good federal legislation like the investment tax credit, the ITC, which makes it, you know, it softens the blow. We have a 26% tax credit on solar or solar and storage today in the U.S., and it's a game changer, and so that's one is is we need good policy. Two is we need to reform how authorities having jurisdiction, which is a wonky term, but that is just a reference to cities and states and counties, the government officials that are permitting construction projects. We have to streamline that process, and Solar Energy Industries Association is is driving. Uh, a good uh, wedge on that front with the solar app, making it easier for solar installers to do their jobs faster, cheaper, quicker. And we need this for all types of the built environment, though,
2: yeah, I think there's actually a broader way to think about it as well. I think maybe people aren't thinking broadly enough about the cost of conversion in some type cases. If you look at it, we work with a lot of hydrogen electric vehicle fleets and forklifts and that kind of thing. And when we've had companies switch over, to from like a diesel powered forklift to a hydrogen electric forklift, they ended up saving money, saving warehouse space, um, having benefits to health for their workers that they didn't have to like inhale all these diesel. Um, And you look at the price of diesel and gas today, that it's really different and volatile. Um, So I think there's like a broader group of benefits and it's not just, oh, look at that big cost up front.
6: I build on that by pointing out that any analysis i've seen is the total cost of ownership of electric fleets is substantially lower uh that's even before you couple the fact that the average ev is probably going to last 20 30 50 100 percent longer uh and the uh, and when I, this is also a market that i am enthralled to see uh, tech companies all over the place going after there's a million problems to solve including the big ones tim's talking about people building these really cost-effective battery systems that load shift when the charging occurs to when the grid can handle the capacity. There's so much innovation around fleet management right now. Uh and the cool thing is, like and I put a, if I decide to buy a car, I have a very narrow set of things like what does it look like? Can I afford it? You know, but when you're a fleet owner, you've got a lot of sharp pencils and you can find ways to save money because you're spending so much. So there's so much innovation. I suspect we'll look back in 20 years, 10 years at the EV fleet revolution and just be head shaking about how primitive it is today. But Companies like the one that asked the question are going to help reinvent this whole market. It's going to be, I think this is a big area of innovation, at fleet, fleet owners, electric fleet ownership and management.
3: I know a lot of cleantech hearts flutter at the EV topic, but I got some others I got to pull you all into. Okay. Um, Kevin O'Rourke at ACOR uh, pointed out a really good piece by a friend of mine, Rob Gramlich, uh, and his piece is um, no transmission no transition how FERC can unlock the clean energy feature with new power lines i'm going to take a question that Kevin and Rob kind of sort of posed, but i 'm going to just put it in simple terms what's the bigger barrier to the clean energy transition? Transmission or storage? Which is the bigger of the two barriers? just i'll just go around just binary answer Josh. Transmission or storage? What's the bigger barrier?
0: <laughs> I don't know. off the top of my head, I've never thought about them in like in terms of uh, which one is is more of a problem. I mean, the, the transmission right now—you know—the the notion of stringing energy uh, like copper wires across dead trees is our primary mechanism of delivering energy. is pretty archaic, right? So I tend to think of abundant electrons produced locally. So I'll say transmission is a problem.
3: <laughs> all right, all right, Mr. Nussi. Something tells me you got an opinion on this. Uh, which is it, which which one do you pick?
0: You know when
6: I go to uh, when I go to a racetrack never been to a racetrack but if I go to a racetrack betting on a horse they, 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 I'm not asking which horse is going to be slower I say which one's faster and so I think storage is a technology that's going to happen incredibly quickly and storage is also a perfect uh, uh, partner to what Josh says the local energy stuff and I wish every time that everyone poses that question they would not make it as in you know what are the challenges to being as if the only answer we have is to build out the big grid, I wish we would put a little bit of our federal efforts, a little bit of our mind share, a little bit of our infrastructure investments into local scale things, which, by the way, you can build a local scale project in a month, uh, you can put in storage locally, it's not a panacea at all, but there's a third player around this card table that everybody seems to forget.
3: All right. Gil, transmission or storage? What's the bigger barrier? Transmission. We've we've just put it off for too
1: long. There's some um, some hopeful green shoots of the stuff that was in IIJA, and Rob Rob's worked hard on it. Kevin too. I mean, um, we just uh, in order to hit the targets we have, we we absolutely have to build significant interregional transmission.
5: Fast. Tim, Tim, what's your vote? Well, I would encourage our listeners to Google energy prices in ERCOT, which is the Texas grid. And they are hot, hot, hot right now. And there's a blue dot at the bottom of Texas where there's a lot of wind power. It's cheap. It's negative cost energy right now. But it can't get to the bulk of the population of Texas because they don't have enough transmission. So I'll say transmission.
3: Emily, what's your take? Transmission or storage? Bigger barrier?
2: Um, I think the storage market's coming along really quickly. So I would say transmission is also the bigger barrier. There's a lot of just billions and billions of dollars that need to be invested in transmission um, and just having a smarter grid where people are able to, to talk to each other and where, you know, you can interface with storage more effectively and, you know, even using electric vehicles or buses as part of that solution. Good.
4: Nico. Go. Same answer. Uh, I would say ditto to everything Bill Nussi said and, and all that followed. I think transmission is the, I, I, Concur with Bill it it's not an either or in my book.
3: You know, I'll I'll just tell because they're out coming out of stealth. I'm involved with a company which has got me much more optimistic on transmission. If you aren't familiar with them, they're Breeze. It's Mike Warshand, a group of people are they're gonna use idled oil and gas pipelines. There's three three million miles of pipelines under North America. 25% oh, of those are idle. idea good idea. They're gonna use the pipes as wires and they're going to ship compressed air stored underground. It, it is mind blowing. Like wow. I think these guys could actually pick the lock on the whole transmission conundrum. So just worth knowing. I, I, I love them. And I, I like to, I like to give the other shout one.
6: It's really cool. Mike is, uh, Amory Lovins is working on with a company that's uh, repowering existing transmissions, So you can get 50, a hundred percent more capacity through the existing lines uh, with minimal costs and changes, and you don't have any of the NIMBYism that stops all the other transmission projects. Yeah. So there's a lot of optimism uh, around transmission, uh, but it, it's just such a slow, expensive, and regulated process that is probably its biggest. Uh, it's not the tech, of course. It's the people who have to sit in committee rooms and make decisions or not.
3: Had an uh, anonymous questioner say, what is the role energy efficiency can play in resiliency plans, and
2: how does it impact the cost of resiliency efforts? Isn't that just math? You know, if you demand less energy, then you right. don't need as much, and it's much more resilient. That's, what, that's where i would come down on that.
3: All right. So significant.
2: I think, right.
6: Well, I would, I would say energy, energy efficiency, if you include in it load shifting, then it's a big game changer, right? If you can, if you can uh, charge a, freeze a block of ice during the nighttime and then use that to cool your home during the day, as an example, or you charge a battery. But I, I do think that energy efficiency, when it becomes dynamic, it's a game changer. Uh, but, like Emily said, if it's full energy, uh, just, just standard energy efficiency using LED bulbs, you're, it's just a linear effect on the overall system.
3: Okay. Another anonymous questioner Is there going to be an appetite to limit or cap local government control over renewable siting decisions if that's what it takes to meet clean energy goals? I believe, Gil, I think you said something about uh, about stripping away local control. Emily, I wanted you to, and, and it's interesting. So, any thoughts on. On that, just to tease that topic out a little bit more.
1: So the question is: Is someone going to try to limit uh, or the eminent domain stuff? Is that what we're talking about?
3: No, it's. Is I think the idea is: uh, Is there going to be an effort at the state level to reduce the amount of um, blocking ability that a town, a, t- a, a township, or a county can have over a project that clearly benefits uh, the state?
1: I guess it depends on the, the how state and the, how strong that politician is pulling um <laughs> the various um I don't know. I that that would be great. Um I haven't heard any rumblings of any any um governors that uh, or other state leaders that wanna take that um brave but important step to um
6: stop NIMBYism for some of these projects. Anybody else wanna I, touch on that one? I think that I mean uh, I I as I listen to the things being discussed across the United States, just as a citizen who reads stuff, it seems that the move is towards more local control. And so I, I, I struggle to see the federal government, particularly the, after the midterm elections and after the presidential election in a couple of years, leaning into anything that's going to override uh, state and local town community control. So I, I think that's a challenge. I don't. I think it's going to go the other way, uh, Mike. It's not going to get. It's not going to have more top-down control. It's going to have less, and. Um, I did. Yeah, I wish I was optimistic about that. But, you know, I, I always point out to people that a bunch of creative legislators, uh, I don't know, if 20 years ago, passed a federal law that made it illegal for anyone to disallow uh, satellite dishes on houses. So you can have a ton of neighborhoods around the United States where the Homeowners Association says it's illegal to put solar panels on your roof, but they can't stop satellite dishes. Uh, that's a national law. And so the, occasionally the government can do stuff like this, but uh, we're not turning that way right now, I don't think.
3: Well, Mr. Nussi, yeah. I, I think you're, for, you're forgetting the very important thing that a lot of these very responsible state legislatures have done. They have barred municipalities from banning gas as a default Good
5: right? point. for
3: electric ovens. So, you know, there's clearly an appetite uh, That's a great at point. state level to, to harmonize things. So I, I know they're not playing they're not picking winners and losers in these red state legislators, are they? No. And you know, in, in, in
6: Nico's state, there's a, there's a bill that's floating in North Carolina that anywhere the state has free uh, <laughs> EV charging, that it has to be matched by a free gas pump right there. I mean, this is this stuff's brilliant. I don't think I mean I I could call ten PhDs and they couldn't come up with this stuff. It's it's awesome. It
3: it, it says it clearly indicates we've got recreational marijuana in, in uh, North Carolina. <laughs> so all right,
2: Emily. Yeah, I'd say um, obviously permitting is a challenge and, you know, getting local communities, I guess. I mean, I almost don't blame them for being suspicious of energy projects that come in for a really long time. All of the energy projects that have come in have had just horrible impacts Great on the communities. We saw in New York State, they were going to do this big hydropower project. We were talking about this on the energy gang a few weeks ago, and um, there was a lot of resistance from the community saying, well, how will this affect my water? And they just want to know and be sure because they don't want to deal with years of problems that they had from those projects. But what we do have... To the opportunity now is to just educate a little bit more about like what these renewable projects are, what wind and solar do differently from the energy projects of the past, and um, also the opportunity to just get communities engaged and excited about it. At Generate, we're really big into community solar projects where you put in the project and the local community has the opportunity to lower their electric bills um, because that's in their town, and then that is something that gets the whole community really excited about the project. So just thinking about how people can participate in the energy transition, I think, is probably the key to that um policy obviously can help too but i don't think you just have to gain people's trust well said
3: well said all right got a question from uh atlas renewable energy they're uh they're down in miami large-scale solar developer solar and wind developer they want to know how can supply chains be strengthened to provide cost-effective alternatives to components using utilizing forced labor as well as ease the supply demand imbalances any thoughts on that
6: I think this is a transparency problem. You know, it's difficult when it's sourced in China to get clarity on what was made and how it was made. I'm on the board of Clean Energy Associates, which is one of the companies that's actually helping solve that problem. And it's uh, the clarity, you know, the getting the provenance of the raw materials is the solution, and uh, uh, and then getting accountability along the supply chain. But my to me. If I if I had a magic if I had a magic wand, then I could change one thing about this uh, the solar industry right now would be domestic manufacturing. Let's bring as much of this into the United States as we can, and just make all these issues a moot point. And uh, it's nice to hear some rumblings that maybe some serious people besides just my state senator John Ossoff talking about this. And so uh, I think that's uh, I think domestic manufacturing is the shortest cut answer to the supply chain hiccups that seem to be everywhere right now.
2: Yeah, I was talking about this on the energy gang last week. We were talking about inflation and the impact of that on the supply chain. And one thing to think about in this is sort of an opportunity to think more circular in what we're doing. Um, When we're talking about changing to clean energy, we're talking about moving from more of a fossil fuel based economy to more of a metals based economy mm-hmm. and we really do have to think about how we're extracting these materials and how we're going to reuse them over and over again so if these higher costs and these supply chain problems are a reason to say oh well what can i reuse what can i find locally um where can i source materials differently so it's more efficient um i think that's something that will be a longer term benefit actually
3: let me pay okay. attention to um i don't I just I, I know i'm i'm um doing client promotion fest on here which i probably shouldn't do but I'll just. it, it is worth noting um Secretary Granholm joined uh, Next Tracker out in Pittsburgh, I think last month. It's the third of these events where Dan Sugar basically went against 30 years of economic trajectory. You know, like when, all the time I've been, it went from high school to where I am now, the whole thing in the global economy was make stuff in the cheapest possible place because you can always put it on shipping containers and get it somewhere. And what's interesting is, is Dan said to me, he said, that the cost. To our customers, the pr- the higher prices of making things here is lower than the cost of supply chain instability that COVID basically created. And it was interesting. So he's literally pulled f- uh, factory line equipment out of Malaysia, out of Brazil, put it on chips, brought it here, and has now set it up, new steel lines in Texas, Arizona, and Pennsylvania, part of a reshoring effort. So... I don't know if it's a trend, but it was, you know, they are the market leader in in trackers. And I thought it was kind of interesting that they were willing really to do that and be really quite overt about it and very public about it in order to like it was all just about assuring customers like we're there. So that oh, was kind of interesting.
4: It's also interesting, just hanging on to um, I was gonna bring up the fact that Next Tracker is already onshoring a lot of their manufacturing as well, Mike, but the supply chain is constrained right now in more than one way. Projects are being delayed right now because. Ports are delayed, right? Oh, and prices are going up on projects and prices are going up on modules and, and not almost nobody's talking about it. But if we think about like, the fact that we're shipping all of this stuff, uh, then we have to take a look at the shipping industry at large. And the shipping industry is the sixth as, a, as an industry is the sixth largest emitter of, of emissions in the world. So we have to ask ourselves in the name of uh, globalization and cost reduction. We've created the sixth largest emitter of fossil fuel emissions. And lo and behold, 40, fully 40% of products transported by global shipping are fossil fuels themselves, coal, oil, gas, so that we can power our industrialized life. So Nico, uh,
3: Nico just so I'm being faithful to my prior post, when you said that kind of weird word and oh, it means emissions, you meant pollution, right? pollution right. got it okay the bad stuff we don't like okay emissions. that's right. not mobile wants to talk about, emissions. We want to talk about emissions. that's okay,
4: right okay so i got you right. i don't know i mean i'm not i'm not the quick one at math here but 40 percent of all global shipping represents is 40 of the sixth largest uh, pollutant pollutant in the world and we're and it wow. and it represents shipping fossil fuels around the world to power our lives
6: so another fun stat for you nico is that for it. Uh, depending on you ask 30 to 40 percent of the u.s military budget is to protect the shipping Routes Mm. to move oil all over the world. That's a difficult number to pin down, but serious people have said it's between twenty and forty percent. If I remember correctly, and and that has its own carbon footprint, but just the vast human resources and other resources in the country.
4: Yeah.
6: Uh, So the the it's difficult. It'd be interesting. I'm sure someone's done a comparison between the full cost of getting solar made in China delivered over to the U.S. versus the full cost of getting oil, natural gas from well oil uh, from the Middle East, for example. Fascinating.
4: it comes back to this whole conversation around ESG. Are we actually taking into account the full cost of the activities we're engaged in, right? And this is why major funds—not this month, not last month, or last year, but for the last five plus years—have been removing the fossil industry from their portfolio. Um, we we, are, we need to take into account, and it doesn't matter whether I concur with previous comments, or like it doesn't matter whether in the U.S. We put a carbon tax we're gonna to have to face the pay the piper anyway because europe's gonna gonna enforce carbon tax and we're gonna to have to deal with the fact that we're one of the largest trade partners and we our, our, our manufacturing is going to require it so may as well try to minimize the overall carbon footprint of our manufacturing and bring it back home i think that's one of the biggest answers. i concur with bill to atlas uh, renewables question
1: i hate to be the downer here but there's no question that um you know there was a eight billion dollar advanced manufacturing, clean energy manufacturing credit in, in the, in the tax bill and and OSOF's bill, which would be 20 gigawatts of solar. I mean, we have to keep fighting for that. I'm, we're also, Washington's talking about passing a $52 billion subsidy to, to advance semiconductor manufacturing. Mm -hmm. And that's actually got a tax credit in it with direct pay. So I think we have some work to do to uh, convince our politicians that, um, the clean energy materials and the associated domestic manufacturing as is as strategic for America as semi, uh, semiconductors and chips are because um, I'm just kind of uh, you know, that's what's going to take. We know tariffs don't work to spur um, you know increases in domestic manufacturing for for solar.
3: We're in our last six minutes here. Let me go to one more audience question, then just do one round Robin here. So Tom Weirich, um, our friend at EDP Renewables, he's got a book coming out. Uh, really, I think a lovely book that hat tips to the 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 origin the OCS, the original clean techers. You know, the ones that took risk a long time ago. So he sent in a question. I'm going to just do a, a take a liberty with it and ask you, what is the risk that clean economy needs to take more of or needs to take in the first place if you had to pick one risk for them to take or take more of what would it be bill
6: i think it gets back to domestic manufacturing if we can make solar and battery and inverters and transformers here in the united states i mean people don't realize the transformers are the backbone of our grid or most of them are not made here and so um bringing that manufacturing back to the united states is the uh, it's, it's risky. And I've talked to, th- these are conversations I have with a lot of people, and it's difficult to write a $250 billion check to build a solar manufacturing facility when the pol- politicians are changing their, their minds as a group every two years, every four years. So I think that's the one risk that I would love to see people in a position to take, uh, is to get the supply chain uh, on for
3: all these products. Tim, risk that we need to take or take more of?
5: I totally agree uh, with this theme of reshoring manufacturing. It's it is by far and away the biggest risk and the biggest reward for our economy and for the climate crisis. Let's make it at home. It, it's it's so good for the economy. It's so good for everyday people, and and it, it gives us a level of control that we just don't have with the globalization that has occurred in the last 40 years. So we should step that back uh, pronto. Nico. Uh,
4: I'll take it a slightly different direction. Uh, I think the biggest risk that clean tech companies need to take is to hire more people who don't have five years experience in clean tech, solar energy storage, whatever false hurdle we've placed in our requisitions that prevent us from really scaling clean. All right. Um, Gil, have I call on you on this one? If not your up.
1: Uh, no, no, I, uh, Those
3: are good answers. All right. Josh, then Emily.
0: So I'll stick with the domestic manufacturing a little bit and and, and try to share a little, some little experience I have with this, you know, I used to work in sourcing, so I spent a lot of time in Asia up and down the special economic development zone. And then I would do the math for what it costs to make something locally. It was not apparel. It wasn't in in this industry. Um, But recently. I think, obviously, we're all kind of going, how do we make this happen here? And it's it's such a conundrum, but I have seen proposals for complete domestic manufacturing in the United States, and I have seen some interesting technologies for that. uh, Low-cost, low-capital investment uh, manufacturing facilities, spoke and hub method, where you have a crucible, and then you have (coughs) local geographic assembly, and then at that assembly, I've even seen some innovative ideas like roll-to-module, basically like a encased voltage variation uh, module that can be made locally with smart wire for geographic kind of like a, a, a better panel for a geographic area. It's a very interesting concept, like full domestic manufacturing through a methodology like this. So I've seen that. I, I'm, I'm behind it. I'm excited about it. I think as we we, do, we start to demand more and more PV over time and it needs to be uh, full life cycle, ACA kind of characteristics to be known and the transparency can come through that too. I, I, I would be very excited about that kind of a step.
3: Emily? What's the risk you want to see clean tech take it's not taken now.
2: Yeah, I'm going to echo a little bit of what Nico just said about um, false hurdles and human capital. Um, Scott Jacobs, Generate CEO, was just on the Shale Can's Catalyst podcast the other week, and he was talking about how we talk a lot about policy. We talk a lot about technology in this space, but we don't talk enough about the people we need to get behind and involved in this and like which people we need to bring along and how to expand our scope and range of people that we can get involved in developing and creating and deploying these projects It's really going to take a lot of people as well as policy and technology. So we just don't want to forget that. Okay. Closing question. Gonna go
3: around Robin here. What is the change or trend or development you're noticing that you think is not getting very much attention is gonna turn out to be a fairly big deal. Something you're tracking, not a lot of people are saying, and it could turn out to be pretty consequential.
4: All right, Bill Nussie. I like this crystal ball question. That's a good yeah. one. Like. The one that's really
6: two two things that have surprised me recently that I love is 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 how much progress we can make improving and accelerating the clean energy grid by controlling loads at the end. It's a little technical, but it comes in simple forms like uh, charging a battery that then charges cars, charging a battery at night and then charge the cars during the day. The other one I'm excited about is smart home panels and smart uh, commercial panels and being able to make decisions that essentially allow us to use the existing distribution part of the grid in a very similar way that was already built. So uh, that's stuff that I'm seeing a lot of very recently and really excited about it.
3: All right, Tim Montague.:
5: Well, I love the trend that there are new concentrated solar power technologies coming to the US, like Phoenix is a company uh, from Canada that's using trackers for industrial hot water. I'm interviewing a company called Rondo Energy that is making hot industrial hot bricks from uh, excess wind and solar electricity. So electric thermal heat. It really makes it possible to completely green industry, which is a huge uh, part of our carbon footprint. So it's just lovely to see this uh, uh, diversification and explosion of, of new heat technologies for the clean economy.
2: Cool. Emily? Um, I think energy storage is really going to be the development and trend to keep watching. Um, The prices came down a lot in the past year. There's been a lot of deployment. Um, There's a lot of really exciting possibility there for the grid as a whole and for grid stability and resiliency. Um, And even also thinking about energy storage beyond, you know, just batteries, but thinking about, you know, hydrogen or hydro and all these other ways to think about how we can be storing the energy we produce by renewables. Nico,
4: Man, this was fun the thing that keeps coming back around in the conversations I'm having with folks is kind of two, there's two trends that are, that are coming together. Uh, If you listen to any of the podcasts, I was going to do a book, a book shout out to Tony Fidel's new book, Build. Holy freaking moly. Put this on your list. Um, This guy like future shape is really investing in the shape of, uh, of, of clean tech. And if you listen to, Folks like Tony Fidel, I, I want to see more communicators like that leading clean tech companies, or at least building fir- firms that invest in clean tech companies. I know a really good one. tell them, "Give them my number." absolutely. Uh, but you know, uh, Tony thinks a lot about the consumer. I think that we are inevitably moving towards a market where I was recently in a conversation with a company in the industry who has adopted a, a framework. Uh, you probably recognize it. I will not call their name, make use, say store, sell, something like that. Right. But that last piece is a question that I asked really early on in my podcast. Um, what do we think about transactive energy? The adopt, the idea that we as consumers can actually take back the power and have it as local power as bill often says it is the most powerful, transformative thing happening in clean energy. And, uh, I'm really bullish on the notion that transactive energy is closer than we, uh, than we thought it was. Gil,
3: last word trend you're tracking, you're seeing, you think it's going to be big. No one else is really paying attention.
4: Well,
1: I hope this is big and this is sort of random. Um, but I was introduced to this company called Zero Avia and they um, do hydrogen powered fuel cell powertrains trains uh, for, for aviation. And I was struck by um the applicability of that technology, it really cuts design costs um, and you can do it on much bigger planes, right? So they're going to be testing it on a 20-seater and eventually their goal is to is to get it to a 40 to 80-seat aircraft by 2026. It wow. just blown away by the AV. Um, there seems to be more focus on the, these kind of four-person people movers, little vertical takeoff and landing things. Uh, but you know that's just not applicable for most types of uh, aviation and i had no idea the kind of um applications with fuel cell and uh, that was happening in broader aviation so i i hope that begins to get more attention. i think it will. i know it's only two percent of emissions, but in terms of capturing the imagination of the American people, what's happening in uh, aviation uh is pretty exciting.
3: i'll close out. i'll go out on a limb and i'll i'll um Okay, Mike, you oh. missed me on that one. Oh, I'm sorry, just, Josh, forgive fast. me.
0: I want to to bounce off of Bill's uh, uh, load control panels because we just installed the Span system here on my home, and I was chatting with Chad Conway. I think he's COO of of Span, and he was talking about uh, some of the unique value propositions of load control panels. And one of them that really struck me as amazing was the prospect of being able to remove the need for a panel upgrade uh, by kind of toggling loads and changing how you use loads. And so, using it real time, I'm seeing some of the uh, series of values that I'd never considered before. But I mean terms of the electrification transfer storage solar i think the load control panel can kind of be the it's not super sexy but there can be a real teeth to this technology it can make a huge difference on a lot of levels to how we deploy renewables
3: nice local energy josh forgive me for that that omission here all right so Jeez. i'm gonna close out with um perhaps a unwarrantedly bold prediction i think there is i'm starting to get a sense of the little rumblings post-dobs, post-mansion performance art that people are getting that clean economy is invested almost all of its smarts, all of its efforts into product development, building teams, commercial execution. And we've totally underinvested in our ability to publicly case make. And I've got an analysis we're going to be putting out um next week. It's robust. It's been six months in the making, but I'm I'm going to give you um I'm going to give you two things here out of that analysis that I think are are it's I think people are beginning to realize we cannot be permanent beggars in the court of public opinion. When it comes to government officials, I've asked this question on LinkedIn and, I, and I'm going to be posting something out later today. I contend there's not a single elected official, regardless of party geography or office, who's politically afraid of crossing the renewable energy industry, not who likes us, but who's afraid of us because politicians need to need at first need to be afraid of you. Then they can respect you, then they can love you, and we go right to love. Well, you won't love us. You know, we're all brokenhearted. Joe Manchin doesn't love us. Well, we don't have anything to offer Joe Manchin, right? Other than a other than a tin cup. I'll I'll just wind you down with this with this anecdote. So I'm reading a book and it recounts a time in the US Senate when the oil and gas industry got a major champion to kneecap the reconfirmation of a of a consumer-minded reformist. Running a major federal agency, and this uh, this consumer pro consumer uh, regulator had been put up for renomination to run a major federal agency. And the oil industry had a senator set up a special committee to kneecap this this gentleman. At the same time, the oil industry is funding this unprecedented effort to like basically do a dossier on him and give the panel that was going to be hearing his renomination. Then what they needed to basically ambush them and wipe them out. And they did. And that took place 70 years ago. And that senator's name was Lyndon Baines Johnson. And the company was Brown and Root. And the reformer's name was Leland, Leland Oles. He wanted to basically enforce the Natural Gas Act of 1938, stop the gas guys from overcharging Midwest and Northeastern population centers, gouging on gas. And Johnson, basically, they... Promised Johnson a lot of money, they flew him around on planes and he kneecapped this guy. And the question I'm going to pose is do we think that in the last 70 years, the oil and gas industry has gotten less aggressive, less sophisticated, less um, good at weaponizing government and propaganda to stop our scaling? And if you do, then you definitely live in a um, psilocybin recreational state because I, I can tell you they've gotten really good. And I think that we are starting to realize that we cannot get anything with a smile and a handshake we're going to get things with smile and a handshake and a gun so i think unless we equip ourselves with the ability to get politicians afraid of us we are not going to we're going to get treated no better than joe manson been treating us no better than the supreme court's been treating us that's my sense i think there's a growing recognition of that i hope we'll see i'll close out with that panelists you are awesome thank you for our uh five returners emily it's been great having you we're going to just you better count we're going to be coming back you, to you get you back on so um mark it down we'll be back at you in a quarter and uh who's going who's going to re plus can i just get so hands who's going there all right all right more cool. hands more hands cool all right well listen hey thank you all and audience thank you for joining us we are um just delighted to do this it's so fun and thank you podcasters for joining us y'all take care great to see everybody um, thanks everybody thank thank you. Thanks, thanks, thanks mike thanks Nico. <laughs> thank you
1: Climate Positive is produced by Hannon Armstrong. If you enjoyed this week's podcast, please leave us a rating and a review on Apple or Spotify, which really helps us get more listeners. You can also let us know what you thought via Twitter at ClimatePosipod or email us at ClimatePositive at HannonArmstrong.com. I'm Gil Jenkins, and this is Climate Positive.